0: Hello, I'm Ian Crossley, one of the members here at Chichester Baptist Church. Over the uh, autumn term, we as a church are offering a series of devotionals over 7 weeks which are available on this website and they are called the series is called Words of Hope. And each week there is a different theme. We're in week th- we've come to the end of week 3 where the theme has been the cross. And we've had five readings, Monday to Friday, and five devotionals led by different people within the congregation, talking about meditating on the work of Jesus on the cross and its effectiveness for us. And I'm choosing one of those five passages, that which came out on Thursday. Ben Horton led some thoughts on it. It's from Romans chapter 5, and we're going to focus on this passage this week. If you've travelled to London and been on the tube, you will be very familiar with the expression "Mind the gap," and it's a reminder, an announcement that comes out that almost has become uh, a cultic in its expression with the logos and the T-shirts that you can buy at the souvenir shops. But it's a reminder to us that in some stations on the tube, the gap between the door of the train and the state and the platform edge is slightly wider than others not impossible to bridge but such that you've got to look at where you're stepping and make sure you take a take a slightly larger step in order to cross that gap it's not too onerous just get the timing right cindy and i recently have been watching a series with susan kalman on channel 5 Secret Scotland, in which she tours and visits all kinds of interesting places in her native country. And we've been enjoying this series. But one particular castle uh, that she visited, Borthwick Castle, uh, stands out as a reminder of this gap, the mind the gap theory, if you like. Because it's an old castle, tall castle, and the keep is built in a U-shape. And the story is that the lord of the castle, when in times of war or conflict, he had taken prisoners, he gave them a choice. He would take them up to the roof of this castle and take them to one arm of the U, uh, and they had the chance to jump from the one side to the other. Now, the gap was about 12 feet, and they had to do it with their hands bound, so they couldn't just pull themselves up if they closely missed. But if they cleared that gap, they were free to go. They were released. If they chose not to try it, they would be imprisoned. If they tried it and failed, well, the drop was sufficiently long that they would no longer be in need of the Lord's hospitality in his dungeons. The gap was significantly bigger than we see on London Underground. In this passage in Romans chapter 5, the quality of God's love is demonstrated by the gap, or should I say the gap, that God bridges with Christ's love and his death on the cross in order to reach us. So let's for a moment consider the background of this particular passage. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He's on his third missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts. And that journey would take about four years. A significant amount of time had he been spent in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey. But for some months he travels to Greece and stays in Corinth for about three months. Now Corinth sits southwest of of Athens and it sits on an isthmus, a small narrow neck of land between northern Greece, between the area known as Achaia, and down in the south, the Peloponnese, the southern part of Greece. That stretch, that neck of land, is only about four miles wide and because the route into Corinth, and from the other side, Centria, uh, was much safer than taking a ship all the way around the south of Greece, then what happened was that the frequently ships would be brought into Corinth or Centria and they would be dragged over land by slaves on a sort of tramway over these four miles and relaunched the other side. So the places were very close to each other. There would have been a lot of interaction between these. And Paul hears of Phoebe, who is from Centuria, which is on the Aegean side of the Isthmus. Corinth is at the end of the Gulf of Corinth, which opens up uh, onto the Adriatic Sea. Phoebe was going to travel to Rome. We're not absolutely sure why, perhaps it was business, perhaps there were some friends she needed to visit, but we read of her right at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes to the church, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So that location, Corinth, quite critical then. Back in the 19th century, a canal was finally dug. It took a couple of thousand years for that canal to be uh, uh, finished, but they dug it and now ships can travel, not large ships, but medium and small-sized ships can travel up that, through that canal at quite a cost. Uh, The length and cut off over 180 miles uh, of round trip from the west of Greece to the east, or, or vice versa. Rome was the only place that Paul wrote to, or the only church in a place that Paul wrote to before he visited them. In fact, many of the places he wrote to were churches that he had planted himself. But other people, perhaps people Paul himself had reached, had made it to Rome and had shared the gospel. And there was a young church there. And Paul wanted to write to them and do what he did with every church that he worked with. He wanted to teach and encourage them in their faith. And so he probably saw this opportunity that uh, Phoebe was due to travel to Rome. We're not quite sure what route she took, whether it was all by sea or part of it was overland. It doesn't really matter in these circumstances. But he took the opportunity to write that letter. I can imagine if he was anything like me, he might have heard a month ago she was travelling to Rome and on the night before she travelled, he would be furiously dictating this letter to go. Perhaps Paul was different, perhaps he wrote it a little bit ahead of time, but um, we don't really know that. And earlier in the book, in in chapter 3 and 4 especially, we see the emphasis on the judicial element of Jesus' work on the cross. That idea that Jesus' death was on our behalf. It replaced, uh, he replaced us, if you like. He died for our sins. Uh, he paid the penalty for what we would otherwise owe to God. And as we move into chapter 5, there is a, a little bit of a shift going on in, in Paul's argument. And what we're going to see now is some reassurance and some reassurance of the depth of God's love for us. We can see that as we look at these verses uh, from 6 to 10, and particularly the first three verses. Paul uses four words to describe the human condition, our condition, before our faith in Jesus. The first of these words is in verse 6, where he describes us as powerless, in verse 7 as ungodly, in verse 8 as sinners, and verse 10 as enemies. Now, by any account, by any measure, that's a pretty dire description of a group of people. Powerless, ungodly, sinners and enemies. You wouldn't think of many people you'd describe in quite such brutal terms. But Paul, remember, is trying to make the point, and he's being quite realistic about what the situation was for us before we became Christians, before we came to Christ. That word powerless indicates that they had no ability to rescue themselves from their own sin. Now, I I had a really good demonstration and reinforcement of powerlessness last Sunday. We were here in the congregation, and it was when Calvin led the first song. And and that is no reflection on Calvin's abilities at all, but much more on my ability to keep time, because as we're not allowed to sing under the current circumstances, Calvin invited us to clap or to stomp to the beat, a slightly irregular beat, to keep time. And it just reinforced to me that I have an absolute inability to keep time. Despite the fact that my family, I'm surrounded by people who are competent and in many cases professional musicians whose timing is immaculate, I cannot keep a rhythm very easily in uh, a song or anything like that. Some years ago, I went sailing on a friend's yacht, and I can remember that on one of the days, it was a very hot summer's day, and we anchored in Osborne Bay off the Isle of Wight. And on that particular occasion a group of us went swimming around the yacht. Now, the idea was that at the end of our swim, we'd be able to get on board by, first of all, lifting ourselves out of the water into the rubber dinghy, which was tied alongside, and then we'd be able to step from the rubber dinghy up to the lower part of the boat's hull and into the boat itself. And and that's what all of us, bar one, did. But one of the guys on board was an officer. I think he was a captain in the lifeguards, a cavalry captain. And he was obviously pretty fit because what he did was he swam to the highest part of the yacht above the water where the shrouds met the hull. And he reached up somehow and managed to haul himself up effortlessly onto the yacht. Now, Had I been standing there at the time, I might very generously have offered him my hand some help to get him on board. And and if he'd been particularly courteous, he might have uh, taken my hand, Uh, not that he needed it in any way, but just to appreciate my kind gesture. But it wasn't really necessary. It wasn't really an act of rescue on my part. But there have been other times in the past when I have been uh, looking after a safety boat in Chichester Harbour and, and boats that I haven't been looking after but from another fleet or individuals have got into quite serious difficulties uh, and they've been capsized in the water for a long time. The crew have lost all energy. But their, their, their well-being is certainly being threatened. And we have rescued them and it's often taken two of us To lift them into the safety boat because they at that stage have no energy left, the total inability, they are powerless now to help themselves. And that shows the gap between our ability in offering them kindness and their inability. And it's those sort of gaps but far greater that Paul is trying to illustrate here as he goes on in in ordinary terms to talk about what might not often happen. He says in verse 7, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Now, Now righteous in this context means someone who is upright but perhaps cold or clinical or unattractive. He's using... Normal speak here, not theological speak. Right? And then he says, though for a good person, perhaps someone who's also warm and generous and, and, and appealing, someone might possibly dare to die. Now you might say, well, I've heard stories of people who've gone, given their lives for other people and, and in different circumstances But that's the point he's making. He's saying verse 7, very rarely. It's not an everyday thing that goes on. But verse 6 has told us that when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And there's a great big contrast word at the beginning of verse 8, contrasting those illustrations he's just given, where he says this, but... God demonstrates, it's present tense, he's continually, he's still demonstrating his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the demonstration, that is the measure of the extremes of the far-reaching love of God that at our most unattractive, at our most evil, at our most unable, he would reach down to die for us. And then in verses 9 and 10... Having seen the depth of God's love reaching down to us, now we see the height of God's love where he's going to take us. And in these two verses, Paul uses what's called an a fortiori argument. Just call it a how much more argument, if you like. So in verse 9, he says, What's already been done since we've already been justified by his blood... What cost there? That's the work of Jesus on the cross, giving himself, his blood poured out for our sins. How much more? You see, if God's already done the big thing, the next step is relatively easy. And what's more, if God's done the big thing to reach us when we're his enemies, now we're his friends, how much more is he likely to do this for us? Yes, absolutely, he's going to do it for us. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? That's the sort of negative, you know, God's wrath. We're being saved from that. But then in verse 10, there's a parallel. He says, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. So we're no longer enemies. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's the positive. So we're going to be saved from God's wrath, but even better, we're being saved through his life. The best is yet to come. In the words of a song that the Labour Party adopted in their 1997 election campaign, their successful campaign, things can only get better. And that is so true for us who are followers of Jesus Christ. If God has done the difficult thing through the cross, can we not trust him to do the comparatively simple completion of the task when we meet him face to face? Have we been saved? Well, the answer is yes, we have We've been saved from guilt. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. But there's also a not yet element to that question. We've not yet, but we will be saved from the sin that lies within us. We will be saved from the presence of sin when we meet Jesus And that will be transforming, so it will be so much better. In the meantime, we've got this tension of saved from the penalty, but still struggling with sin within us. But that's the effective work of the cross that will accomplish that, just as it has accomplished our salvation to this point. So what we see is at the cross, God, the judge, For those who have believed in Jesus has pronounced us righteous, cleansed from our sin. And what we anticipate and look forward to is that God the Father will welcome us home. And we are not the only ones looking forward to that. Because the Father himself looks forward to welcoming you into his presence one day because of what has been accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this letter to the Christians in Rome nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul could describe the depth of your love demonstrated to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And then he could expand that to the height of your love in what it will yet accomplish for those who are now your children. And you take pleasure in this. May we take pleasure in our love for you, in your work for us. And in our confidence that we are given through these words that the best is yet to come for we give you thanks and pray this in the name of our lord jesus christ whose work has accomplished it amen